So before we talk about the passage of Exodus 33, okay, I'm going to build this up for you, okay? We're going to do a little bit of nerdy stuff um, just because I feel like it makes it cooler, okay? And I'm all about trying to be cool. My life, cool. Um, struggling, okay? <laughs> Who's white is Not a democracy here. Oh, he got a new pen for us. Okay, so the book of Exodus, um, it's the way it's structured is actually a message in itself. Okay? So there's something, one thing that we that is kind of a hard to grasp for a lot of like Western audiences is is the way that Hebrew people think. Because when we look at a lot of Greek, because a lot of our philosophy, education, the way we've been taught, how we think, it's a lot of it's based on a lot of um, Greek philosophy and Greek way of thinking that have built a foundation for a lot of Western civilization, right? The whole like um, Roman Republic was foundation for even how we do a lot of government. But when we go back to the Old Testament, we have to actually look at things differently because they just think differently from us, right? They don't, I heard someone say it so interestingly, if... Um, a Western thinker, a Greek thinker, is much more visual than if you look at this square, like a TV screen, right? And let's say you can only put so many things on a screen, right? What's important? Okay, we need to have like, let's say we're trying to depict Christmas. You know, we need to have a Christmas tree and it should take up this much space and all that. And here's a Christmas tree. Now this has taken up, what? 30% of the entire screen, okay? So then now you have to make space for something else. and. It's, it's limited. There's only so much space, and so we have to, it has to all fit. But they're like, see, a Hebrew person doesn't think that way. A Hebrew person doesn't look this way. If you're trying to, because this is like, okay, 30% Christmas tree, 10% snow, 20% uh, Christmas presents, and that captures Christmas. And it's kind of like broken down that way. But then what do you think about, when you think about audio, or how do you say it, aural, aural way of thinking, if you have one instrument playing, okay, how much of the sound takes was one instrument take up? It takes up if it's playing by itself, it takes up 100% of the sound, right? But if you add another instrument, is it now 50/50? It's not. They're actually both they're both 100%. They they take up the space in the same way, right? And then you add another instrument and they're all still 100%. It's not it's not spatial, you know what I mean? It's just a different way of looking at it, and they can all exist in the same time, and actually existing at 100% in the same levels, in the same space, they actually harmonize, and you, it changes the way you look at it, right? So for me, it's like, what does that even mean? How does that make sense? Because we're so mathematical, we're so logical, reasonable, things need to add up and make sense. All of a sudden, like, when you throw in that kind of way of looking at it, things just don't make sense. They talk, they talk about block logic, right? Hebrew, Hebrew logic, they call it block logic, and it's like, they talk about here's God as one big thing, and then um, it's hard to explain. It's like a philosophy thing, and where there's like this is block, and this is true, but this is also true, but this is exists inside of this, and so they're both true, but they're also contradictory. Doesn't make sense. Don't worry about it. But all that to say, it it doesn't make sense the same way we do. So we need to help ourselves get into the frame of mind of how the Hebrew person thinks. Okay, in ancient Israel, the way they think. One thing I can tell you, that whole thing was just uh, unnecessary. I shouldn't have said any of that. It's a waste of time. But one way they think is 
What's the Western way of viewing a story? The where's the main point? The main point is usually at the climax, right? So a story builds like this. It builds rising action. Here's like a whatever hero's journey and rising action, and then the main conflict is at the is toward the end, right? And then this is all falling action. But the like this is where all the meat of the conflict is, and then the the point of the story is at the very end, the falling action. Right? And it's like, okay, so what's the point? The resolution. It happens at the very end, conclusion. If you look at a lot of Hebrew scripture, they don't follow this. They don't follow this format. This eraser is not working. They don't follow this format. Typically, the way they look at story structure is whatever happens in the middle is the most important. And so they'll actually structure things in a way where it's like, um, if you, you this happens, if you start getting an eye for this, you see it all over the Bible. It's crazy. Where even if um, somebody has a statement like, the, the, the roses are red, but the violets are blue, but Christmas trees beat them all, but violets are blue and roses are red. You kind of get, okay, that doesn't make sense, but <laughs> the idea of this, watch, of like, you make a statement and it says A, and then a statement, next statement is B, and then the third statement is C, all right, and then the fourth statement is B again. It repeats the same idea. And then this, it repeats the same idea again over here. Anyone reading this in a Hebrew culture would recognize, oh, what's most important is whatever was said in the middle. Okay, whatever said in the middle. And this happens on large scales and on small scales. It happened like in, in how they talk sometimes. If you ever see Jesus, he'll make a statement and then he'll make another different statement and he'll repeat the first statement because he's emphasizing the middle, right? This happens all the time, right? This is common, like a literary technique in... Um, Hebrew literature. So, on one big scale, what I, I'm saying all that to say, if we look at the book of Exodus, okay? Book of Exodus. You guys still with me? Did I lose you? That's too nerdy. Um, the entire first half of the book is just narrative. It's story, okay? It's people are enslaved, and then Moses is, is uh, the little baby, you know, and he, everybody watched that movie, right? Prince of Egypt. And that's basically Exodus 1 through, I forget, like 12 or something. And then, there's like, and then there's like a bunch more chapters of them in the wilderness. And they're like, oh, take us back to Egypt and whatnot. But all of that ends around like chapter 20-ish, 18-ish. And then what happens is Moses brings the Ten Commandments. And then there's a, a short section, a few chapters, where Moses talks about the laws. Important, like some of the most important laws. Okay? And the entire second half of the book, starting from chapter 24 to chapter 40, is one huge chiasm, one huge chiasm, okay? And so what happens is this, I'm gonna, uh, oh, do I have it in my notes? I don't. Chiasm, sorry, the chiasm was the structure of A, B, C, B, A, and whatever's in the middle is what's most important, right? And so it's like the pyramid structure. So let me, let me map it out for you, where's my phone? I actually don't remember this stuff. Okay, I'm just gonna kind of wing it and then, but I'll kind of give you more information later. Can someone find my phone though? Well, in chapter 25, okay, I'm just gonna run through this really fast, all right? Exodus chapter 25, you have, you have God giving instructions on how to build the ark, ark of the covenant. Not Noah's ark, okay, ark of the covenant. And there you go, Lisa's <laughs> genius. Saving us. I'm a mom. You are. Oh. 
Perfect. Okay, so God gives instructions on how to build the ark. Okay? How to build the ark. And let's actually write it like this. Building the ark. Okay? Chapter 40, at the very, very end, is the people. So this is God giving instruction, the first half. And the second half is all the people following the instructions. And at the very end is they build the ark. They have instructions. Actually, it's kind of weird because they mess it up. But then what happens next is God gives instructions of how to build the holy of holies. Holy, right? Holy. And then in the in the chapter 38 or something like that, 39, they, they build the holy of holies. Right? And then this happens for like seven chapters straight. And what happens next is he gives instructions on what the priest should be wearing, who the priests are, and it has to be this person. They have to do this, and these are the roles. And then the, what happens next is... And then you got to find these artists who are going to paint the stuff and build the lamps and, like, the carpenters and all that kind of stuff. And they give all the instructions for who should do it and what kind of artist should do it. And then he gives instructions on, uh, on the court, right? Okay, no. Basically, what he does after this is he gives instructions on the Sabbath, okay? So, and this is all kind of, like, rising levels of of importance okay and then something happens here which i'll tell you in a minute and then what happens here is now the people go forward and they start practicing the sabbath they start practicing the sabbath and then they go find those artists and they they commission the artists to 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 make the lamps and to paint the stuff and all that kind of stuff and then they commission the priests and they give them the clothes they need and all that stuff and then they build the holy holies and all that stuff so you're seeing over the course of tw- like 16 chapters, they're building this this giant chiasm. And if you read it, it just feels like straight up instructions. You know, it's just like, oh, it's just like a workbook, and then they follow it. But it was an intentional literary technique because they're saying what happens in the middle is incredibly important. Because all of this is instructions for how to build, overall, building the tabernacle. Repeat after me, say tabernacle. Tabernacle symbolizes one thing. It symbolizes the presence of God, right? The presence of God. This entire giant chiasm is trying to explain what is the point of the tabernacle, what's at the heart of the tabernacle. And to explain, so anyone reading this would be like, oh, whatever's in here is like defining moment. Whatever's here is what God's really, Moses cares so much, he's going to spend 16, he's going to spend 16 chapters building up to this one main point. And what happens here? Right here is a story. Exodus. 32, all the way to 34, right? I cannot write. Exodus 32, 34. And so what happens here? Anybody know what happens in Exodus chapter 32? Moses comes down. He has all the instructions. He comes down from the mountain, and he finds all the people. They built a golden calf, right? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to erase all this. It's actually not being done. So, we just lost half our audience. <laughs> I'm good, Sohi, actually. I lied. I'm not going to use the whiteboard anymore. <laughs> Sweaty. So, this story that's trying to capture what is the tabernacle, the presence of God, 
It's a story of, very simply, of man's failure. In the midst of this beautiful story of God wanting to make his presence with his people, at the center of it is a story where they build a golden calf. They betray God. And the next moment, it's God choosing to still be with them. It's this beautiful story of God's unending grace, of him saying to the people of Israel, I still want to be with you no matter what. I still want to be with you no matter what. All right? We're going to break that down a little bit. So in Exodus 33, what happened is that the Israelites, they, um, they, they built the golden calf. Moses came down, was so angry. God was so angry. And we're going to read from Exodus chapter 33. All right? Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac, in saying what I said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So what's God doing here? This is the punishment for the for this is his response to the people building the golden calf. And what God does is even already, even in just this passage, there's grace here. Literally the people, God just rescued them and did all this stuff. And their response is, well, we feel kind of bored or we're lost or confused. So we're going to build a golden they, they cheated on God. They committed adultery against God. They, they found a different God and totally offended him and disrespected him and abandoned him and betrayed him. Right? And even there, you see the beginnings of God's being gracious, where he says, even after they've screwed up, he says, I'm still going to help you get to the promised land. I'm going to, what he does is there's two things here. He still provides his promise, right? I'm, you're still going to experience the promised land. And he also provides protection. I'm going to send my, my angel before you, and he's going to fight for you, and it's not going to be hard. But then he withholds one last thing. But there will be promise, there will be protection, but there won't be no my presence, right? And so it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a, a dad living with a, a, a wife or a, a kid, right? And they do something so heinous, so terrible to the father. The father says, you know, I'm still going to pay your bills. I'm still going to keep up the security system and, you know, and make sure that no one robs you. And I'm still going to take care of everything you need, but I got to move out. Because I just can't be with you anymore. Because what you've done has broken our relationship, right? And there's not presence. Because it's so interesting that receiving protection from God can be a very one-way thing. It just happens. We don't even know it, right? I think of little kids. But in, in, in receiving the promise of God, it just, just, it, he can just give it to you. But the presence of God is not something that he can just force on you. He can't just give it to you. Presence is different from promise and protection in that it takes two parties. It's a relational thing. It's a mutual thing. And so when they committed adultery against God, when they went to other gods, what, what's happening is they're saying, and they actually didn't get, go to other gods. They actually built a bull and said, this is, this is uh, Jehovah, right? Whatever. Um, what he's doing is, I can still provide all that stuff, but I can't give you presence because there's something that's broken between us. And then you need to meet me halfway here. And this is where Moses comes in, all right? Moses comes in. He goes in as a representative of the people of Israel. 
And he says this. Moses, you know, it talks about the tent of meeting, and he set it up. And then verse 12, down to 33, verse 12, Moses goes up to talk to God and says, Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring this people up, bring up this people. But you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, the word keyword here is favor, okay? Favor. Now, when we think about generally the term favor, it's, it feels very um, someone who was top of the class or whatever. You're the best. So okay, I like you a lot. See, but favor here is something really interesting because Moses didn't really do anything to earn. He was, the, the idea is naturally to look at this and say, Oh, Moses was so good. Moses was so perfect. Moses was such a great leader that he could go before God and be like, God, I've done so great. I'm so amazing. I'm so awesome. You love me so much that you have to do this for me. But if you really think about it, the story of Moses, Moses has done very little. Even from when he was first called, he, he had no qualification. He had So the way that we look at Moses today, you know, there's books written about, like, how to be a leader like Moses. But if you look at it, it's like, you shouldn't be a leader like Moses because he's a very bad leader. He didn't accomplish, he didn't do very much. Even the very last thing that he did was he, he messed up and he hit the rock, you know, and God punished him. So he, he was never like this amazing leader. He was just by favor. What they mean by favor is purely just like, it's almost like a, let me paint a picture for you, okay? I'm thinking of like this Korean movie that I saw. I can't remember what it was called, and I might be making half of this up, but it's a <laughs> it just just roll with me, okay? It's fiction. And there's a there's like a an old Korean guy who is a soldier or a ex special forces, you know, super capable, all that stuff. And but he's retired and he's living in you know like s secrecy, and he just is like a fruit vendor or something like that. And then in his neighborhood, there's this little girl who is like an orphan, and she runs around, and she steals stuff, and she scams people and whatnot. But little by little, they build a relationship, you know, and he starts, like, seeing her as a little girl that and he'll come and give her fruit and whatnot. And, and so they're building that relationship. And then one day, he finds her, and she's stealing money from his house. And he grabs her. And I, I'm not sure if I've seen this movie, but it pictures so clearly in my head. He grabs her, and she bites him. Okay, she literally bites him on the hand, and he gets pissed, and he hits her, right? And he hits her, and she looks at him, and she's like, I hate you, and she runs away. Okay, so that was our last interaction, very bad. A few days later, he, the girl, he sees the girl um, get kidnapped. He sees the girl get kidnapped by people to go, to be trafficked, right, to be trafficked. And he sees her, and she's getting taken by these men, and she looks back and sees this man. And in that moment, it's... I know the last thing I did was steal from you, and I bit you. <laughs> um, but the look in her eyes was like, what, what, I, what you see in her eyes is what we're talking about. Have I found favor in your eyes? I know that I don't deserve it. I know that I've done wrong to you. But do I still matter to you? Are you still going to choose to protect me and do something nice for me and care for me, even though I don't deserve it? That's what favor is. Favor is saying, like, I'm not going to have pity on you, you know, or, like, I'm going to choose to help you even though you don't deserve it. So what Moses is saying, like, haven't you chosen us? 
end of the day, what he's asking God is, but God, you love us, right? There was no like, hey, I've done, because when they hear that, oh, have I found favor in your eyes? Like, I've done great, right? I earned this. I earned this reputation. You have to do this for me. What he's saying is like, God, but you still love us, right? We don't deserve it, but you still, I know we messed up big time, but you've chosen us. We still matter to you, right? We're like your child. We're yours. We belong to you still, right? And are we not special in that sense? And he, he pleads to that, and God responds so quickly, and he just says, in verse 14, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you. See, what's happening here is so interesting. And it, it goes on, and he says, for how will it be known that I, you know, I'll give you rest? And then Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with me, I won't go from here. How will it be known? Is it not you're going with us? We're just saying, like, we're nothing without you. We need you with us, or else we're, we're, we're hopeless. And then Moses says, this very thing I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. And what he's saying is like, end of the day, I'm still choosing you. End of the day, even though you guys are a piece of crap, I still want to be with you. I'm still going to choose to say, I want you. Not because there's anything you've done, not because you're great, not because Moses is so awesome, but because you're mine. You know, because you're mine. And then he goes on to talk about, and he asks God, he asks God three things, right? Like, who will go with us? And then he's like, and then ask him again. The last thing he says is, show me your glory. And glory in this sense, um, when we talk about glory, the way that Jewish people talk about glory is very different from the way that Greek people talk about glory. Nowadays, a lot of glory is about like fame, like how uh, well-known you are. But, but glory in a mystical sense is like capturing the true nature of who God is. Like, and when he's asking God to show me your glory, what he's saying is, let me, let me experience the fullness of who you are. Kind of like if, um, like, I don't know, before I met Sarah, and <laughs> I got to stop talking about Sarah, right? Where did she even go? But talking about Sarah, and there was a moment where I, I knew her, and I'm getting, to, I'm getting an idea of what she's like, but I remember there was this one moment, okay? This is a little silly. We were at a coffee shop, and if you know our story, like, it's the coffee shop, and we were there, and I wasn't talking to her, but she was, someone walks in um, that I didn't know, but she knew who was younger, and it was kind of like one of those little socially awkward, um, talks too much, you know, wants to, is a little overbearing, and people, people know was like, oh, just avoid her. But the, the girl walks in, she says hi to some people, and you could tell those people were kind of like, you know, like, oh, hi, I'm really busy, leave me alone. And then she said, can I sit here, can I sit? And then she comes to Sarah, and Sarah, see, Sarah watches this girl getting kind of like shunned by people. And she goes, hey, it's so good to see you. Sit down. And they talk for like 20 minutes, and of course you can sit with me. And in that moment, what I saw, I was like, I saw Sarah differently. I felt like, in a sense, I was seeing the best of her. I was seeing what makes her special, right? And in a weird way, it's like, I saw Sarah's glory, <laughs> you know? But, but, but the idea of, like, <laughs> right? But, but it's the, what I mean is just the idea of, like, seeing the true nature of somebody, not just the professional front, not just from a distance, not just like on TV, you know, but like when he, what Moses is asking is, let me be intimate with you. 
Let me know you truly. I want to be close to you. Let me be close to you. It's, it wasn't some, let me see something really cool and awesome. What he's saying is, Lord, I want to know you truly. I want to know you deeply, right? Let me know you. Let me see you. Let me experience you. What he's asking for is presence. And see, this is so special because in this situation, it's, it's God invited this, this situation where it's, hey, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to promise and protection, all that stuff. But presence is something that I have, you, have to, you have to step into. It's an invitation. I'm still here. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to take care of you. But at the end of the day, Moses represents somebody who comes as a humble person and says, at the end of the day, I still want you too. We need you. We want you. And it res- God responds so graciously immediately in saying, there was no like, a, okay, well, now you got to do this. And if you're going to win my grace back, if you're going to win my favor back, then you better shape up and you don't do this, all this stuff. Immediately, his first reaction is, I will go with you. And I'll bring you rest and I'll bring you peace. And Moses says, could you show me your glory? He says, I'll, I'll make my glory pass before you, right? And so it's this, it's this beautiful image of God showing his desire and willingness to stick with a stupid people, to stick with sinful people, stick with selfish, shameful, horrible, conceited, arrogant, impatient people. And he sticks with them and he's telling them, I want to be with you no matter what. Right? I just want to break down that, that sentence real quick. God, it's, it, grace is God's way of saying, I still want to be with you no matter what. Part of that first, the first key word for me is still. I still. One is I have always wanted to be with you. And in that sense, it's not like, oh, now I want to be with you. It's like, I still want to be with you. It's an ongoing thing. I, I haven't changed my mind. It's not that you've changed. It's just I'm still going to commit. It's not lesser than. It's not whatever. It's, it's still. And another key word is want. This one's a weird one because the idea that God wants to be with us, the promise, it, I, I'm being pretty, pretty intentional about not saying grace is God being with you, right? Because again, presence is not something that can be done to you. Presence is something that is, it happens relationally. But God makes his intentions clear. I want to be with you. That doesn't mean he will be with you. Because if no one, if you don't come, if you don't receive, if you don't receive the grace of God, if you don't allow him to be with you, then it won't happen. But his desire, his intention is I want to be with you no matter what, right? You see, and this is kind of the story of the, of the Bible. This is a story of, it's, it's from the beginning to the end. When I look at scripture, it's, it's the genre of it isn't, I mean, there's so many ways that you can look at scripture as like a, a guidebook for how to be a Christian or a, uh, uh, a plan for how to fight against spiritual warfare or a way to take over the world. I don't know, whatever. But essentially, when I look at the large picture of what scripture really is, the story, it's a love story. And it starts in Genesis chapter, chapter one, right? You look, at, you look at God and he's caring for his people and he, he, someone said it so well. They're like, days one through five of God making everything was him preparing a gift to give to his child on day six. He built, he made the earth and he made the sun and the stars and all the fruit and all this stuff so that when he made man last, he could be like, I prepared all this for you, right? And, and then even in chapter three, what happens when man fails, when man sins, they eat the fruit and, and they're, they're scared. They, they know they've done wrong and they're ashamed. And what do they do? They hide. They hide because they know that there's something, they've done something wrong. 
And then what's the very first thing? I've said this before. What's the very first thing that God says in response to man's failure? When Adam and Eve are hiding, when Adam and Eve are ashamed and they are avoiding God, they're avoiding his grace, the first thing that God says, he says, where are you? He says he came to the garden and he looked and he saw that they were hiding. He says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? His first question was, was around the idea of it's, it was a movement towards saying, I want to be near to you. Why are you distant from me? Why are you far from me? I, our presence isn't connecting. I'm here, but I'm not with you. Where are you? And it's this, this initial, that, that statement, where are you, was God's first movement toward man. And he spends the rest of the entire Bible just saying, I'm still going to pursue you. I'm going to come after you. I want to be with you. I'm going to try to help you figure out how to live in a way where you can walk with me. And even though you mess up, I'm going to get angry, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what you're doing wrong. But at the end of the day, my grace is always going to say, I still want to be with you no matter what. And it's so funny because, like, even when you look at, uh, even when you look at, like, Isaiah, it happens in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, where, where people are in exile, and it's talking about, uh, Isaiah is talking about, like, how could you do uh, like, basically, God is talking about, I'm still going to forgive my people who have totally forsaken me. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore them to the land. And Isaiah is like, why would you do that? And a famous verse comes out where God says to Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways. And, you know, people have thought, used that in all kinds of ways. What people use that for is saying God is confusing and mysterious. Oh, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But when God originally said that, what he was saying is, I will forgive and I will love and I will pursue beyond what is reasonable or practical for you. And where, where any one person, where a human being would be like, I'm done with this. You should totally punish them. How can they treat you like that? How can they disrespect you like that, God? How can, they, how can you accept them? And he says, my ways are higher than your ways. It was show, he, what he's saying is, I am so much far above that in my power, what I choose to do with my power and my, my immeasurableness is I will choose to forgive and love again and again and again and again and again. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis. I love it. It says this. He says, it is kind of addressing the idea of like, of leaders who, not leaders, it's addressing the idea of how people interact with relationships because you know anyone would say this hey if a guy keeps treating you like that you should leave him right if, if someone treats you like that you, you can't let them treat you like you can do it once or twice but you know trick me once then shame on me or shame on you but trick me twice shame on me right it's the idea that like no you don't let people keep doing bad stuff to you right and even we sometimes do that as, as christians and pastors all the time we paint god out to be somebody who's really mad and upset and irritated that we keep messing up like Oh, like you keep doing this, or like as if God's like petty or impatient or irritated, rolling his eyes at us, right? But then, because what they're doing is they're assuming if I was God, that's how I would feel. If I kept had, if I had a student or a disciple or somebody that kept falling away, that kept messing up, I would be so annoyed and I would slap him into shape. And so they assume that's must how how God must feel, right? But God's ways are higher. And C.S. Lewis has this great great quote, and he says, "It is a poor thing." To strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. It's a poor thing to come to him as a last resort. To offer up what we have when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were a proud person, he would hardly have us on such terms. 
but he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us, even though we've shown that we prefer everything else to him. And we come to him because there is nothing better left to be had. It reminds me of Luke 15 when, you know, the prodigal son. And I'm pretty much done for today. It's such a simple idea. But Luke 15, when we look at the father, and it's the same image. Luke 15 is the prodigal son who, who leaves and betrays his father and abandons him. And the father has to experience all this shame and, like, all that stuff. But then when he comes back, the father's first response is, is nothing but welcoming back. Nothing but grace. This overwhelming sense of there is nothing you could do that could make me not want you home. There is nothing you could do that could make me not want to still be with you. There's nothing you could say or, or, or fall into or do to me or do to somebody else or, no, or how stupid you can act. All the things that we do that make us hate ourselves. God is saying, no amount that you hate yourself can make me dislike you even a tiny bit. I love you so much more than you understand. And that's the process of what it means to, and, and, and Christian, it's so difficult for Christians to understand that concept of learning how to receive that kind of grace from God. Because everything we do, and, and it's, it's, it, it's written into how we do it. It's written into how we do ministry of how we, we understand, oh, you have to repent first. And once you do a good job of repenting, then God will be near to you. But no one in scriptures are like that. The whole idea was that it begins with God saying, I still want to be with you. I still want to be close to you, even though you don't deserve it. I, and I open the door for you. And, but at the end of the day, it's an invitation to saying, will you say yes to me? Will you let me love you? And the Christian journey is learning how to receive the grace of God because everything in us doesn't know how anymore. Everything in us, we, we function in a way. When I do bad, I deserve punishment. When I do bad, I should hide. When I'm not doing well, I, should, I shouldn't be, I, shouldn't, I have no right to come to God and be near to him or anything like that. It's so easy for us to avoid God, and there's a million ways we do it. Everybody does that. It, anyone can feel great when, you know, they're doing a good job. They read the Bible that day. They evangelize somebody. I don't know. They do all the things that make them feel like I'm being a good Christian, and so it feels easy to pray. But what about the days when you feel really lazy, or you, you, you go off on somebody, you lose your temper on somebody, or you, like, suddenly are really lustful, and you start thinking terrible thoughts, and you're like, and you feel disgusted by yourself. You feel like you hate yourself. You're so, like, I, I, I wouldn't even want to look at myself in the mirror. I wouldn't even want to, but then that, that experience of having to step into a place of recognizing, even in this, God wants to be with me. And the hard part is, can I let him? Do I know how to let sit there and let him love me? To let him love me. We're going to wrap. I just want to share one story of when I was, um, there's a bunch of little things I want to say, but one time when I was in Kona, and I, I, I'm still like, I'm still bad at this, right? I'm still bad at this. It's still awkward. I, I, we have such a tendency to not want to receive. But I remember this one time where I was um, in Hawaii. I went to this, like, I was at this retreat, and I had this moment. It's a long story. I had this moment, though, where I um, was breaking down crying on my own, working through stuff with my dad and feeling like I was alone. Um, and I opened my eyes. Because I felt like there, I felt the, I felt like God was there with me, um, but it was good. But I just opened my eyes, and I, what happened was one of my friends accidentally bumps me. He bumps me, so I opened my eyes, and then I noticed because I thought I was sitting there by myself. And what I noticed was that three of my closest friends were sitting right next to me. 
right? Will was here, Brian was here, and the guy named Juwan, he, he bumped my arm. He sat down next to me, he bumped my arm, and he was like, oops. And I remember my friend Will said, dude, you just ruined the moment, right? right? And they all started laughing, and I started laughing, and then I started crying really hard, okay? And they were laughing, and they're like, oh, I thought we were laughing. That was a happy moment. Because what was happening in that moment was, because what I had just felt a minute before that was like, even though I feel alone, even though I feel like I, I, you know, I'm tired of having to try and prove myself, I feel like God still sees me and he loves me. But I felt still alone in that moment. And I opened my eyes and I realized my friends have been here the entire time. They've, they've always just been there for me. I just didn't know how to let them be there with me. And I opened my eyes and I felt, in that moment where we just laughed, I felt loved by them. And I immediately started crying, okay, like a weirdo. And, and then what all I could say was, I'm like literally choking on my words and they're like still kind of laughing and feeling awkward. And I'm like, I need you guys. I need you guys. I said it like 15 times. I had to say it. And, and, and everything in my body was cringing. It was cringing because I had never said something like that to my friends, right? Where they're all leaders and it's like, it's cool. Hey, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. Hey, you deal with that. Let me know how it goes. But in that moment, I was crying. I was saying, I need you guys. I need your friendship. I need your support. I need you to still believe in me, even though I feel like an idiot sometimes. I, I just need your love and your care and your support. And just saying that, I felt, I was cringing. Because I feel so, I feel humiliated. You know, they weren't humiliating, but I felt stupid. I felt shameful. I felt weak. I felt like a wuss. I felt like, I don't know, all these things. I felt like I'm being so embarrassing. I'm feeling I'm such a burden. I feel like they're all that stuff. But what I was learning to do was sit and to receive grace. Because my friends in that moment, they were vessels of the grace of God. They were vessels of the grace of God. And they were teaching me how to receive grace. See, grace is such an interesting thing because my therapist has something so awesome. She says, you know, all therapy really is is where I help you learn how to sit in discomfort. And I'm realizing it's because only if we can learn how to sit in discomfort, we can start tapping into the places where we need grace the most. Where we need grace the most. The places where you feel the most awkward, the most embarrassed of yourself, or all that stuff. Learning how to receive in those moments. Amen? We're going to close, but you can stand to your feet. And, I mean, you guys can actually spread out. Let's take a minute if you want. You can stay where you are. Or you can kind of make your own space. I just want to close in a little time of prayer together. Yeah. Get your own space just for a little bit. pastor of mine said once, um, he said, simple truth only gets boring when you're not living it out. Simple truth only gets boring when you're not experiencing it. And I think about how something so simple, like, hey, God loves you no matter what. These cliche things we throw around, it's these simple ideas. God wants to be with me still, no matter what. God wants his, he wants me to be able to step into his presence, to receive his presence, to receive his grace, to receive his love and his loving embrace. 
He wants to be able to meet me in my weakest and to, to hold me and to love me and to remind me that I'm loved no matter what. But that simple truth is so, it, everything in our body, some reason we resist it in so many ways. But just like I said a couple weeks ago, the Christian journey, it's we, we grow up, we mature, we learn by learning how to become a child. Learning how to receive. Learning how to remember that I, I, I need your favor, Lord. I'm the person, I'm the kid that doesn't deserve it. But yet you choose me. And man, I know so many kids who are like, who have been in foster youth or foster care because they had abusive situations and they grew up in toxic environments. They never received love, any of that stuff. You know how they react when they finally receive someone who really like wants to love them and care for them? It's so awkward. It's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable because we don't know how to receive. We're so guarded. We're so protected. But the journey of healing, the journey of maturity is learning how to receive the grace of God. So right where you are, what we're going to do, I want you to come before the cross. And my job as a pastor, one thing I want to do is help you reimagine what the cross means to you. Because a lot of times people have used the cross to say, look what God did for you. You should feel so guilty and indebted to him. But that's not at all what God was trying to, wanted you to feel from the cross. When you see the cross, what God wants you to see is him telling you, I still want to be with you no matter what. I want to be with you no matter what. There is literally nothing that I will not give to meet you where you are. And I'm here. But will you let me be with you? The cross is the biggest open invitation just to open his arms and say, I want to be with you. But you also have the power to say no, to hide, to reject God. But his grace, the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel is God saying, I want to be with you. And it finds its beautiful ending, the beautiful ending of the lowest story when you say yes when you receive. I just want us to take a minute, just a few minutes in silence. And so he'll play with us and play for us and minister to us. But I want us to take this time not to ask God for anything, not to tell him you're going to do stuff, because there's a time for those kinds of prayers, like, God, I want to do this, I'm going to do this, I'll do that. But can we take a moment? It has to begin first and foremost. Our life begins when we learn how to receive his grace. When we learn how to let him tell us that he wants us. You are wanted by God. You don't have to hide. It doesn't matter what ugly thing you've done or you do or the thoughts you have or the bad habits you have or the things that you think that you're, you're, you're still failing or you fall short. I want to be with you. Let me be near to you. Whatever's on your mind, tell me. You're frustrated, you're angry, you're, 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 you're irritated, you're, you're distracted. Whatever it is, just tell me. Let me be with you. 
Let me be with you.